0: The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the mirrors political podcast. My name is Jason Beattie and I'm joined today by my colleagues Ben Glaze and Nicola Bartlett and we're going to review what has been an extraordinary year in British politics. Obviously it's been dominated by that one word, Brexit, but we've had resignations, we've had festivals, we've had chaos, we've had insurrections, we've had confidence votes, we've had summits which have ended in tears, we've had Theresa May standing firm, we've had Theresa May saying she's going to quit at some point, we've had more cabinet resignations than i can ever imagine and on it goes so ben nicola let's start right at the beginning which began in the year of
1: chaos with a chaotic reshuffle i seem to remember back in january that's right It was meant to be the prime minister's big reset you know big year of brexit ahead she wanted to get the right team around her so uh, she embarked on this reshuffle uh, briefed in advance some of it and then it sent into chaos very quickly when chris grayling the man with the opposite of the Midas touch, uh, yeah, very yeah. briefly became uh, Conservative Party chairman. A whole I believe it was 27 a, seconds, I think. That's so, right, from tweets until deletes, I think. Um, yeah. and Yeah, so uh, he, he was then asked about it later, and uh, yeah, it was all quite embarrassing, and, and he's now the Transport Secretary and uh, seems to be making a right hash of that as well, I think. Yes, I mean, if anybody who should have been, you know, kicked out of a cabinet, it should have been Chris Grayling,
0: possibly Boris Johnson as well, but obviously we'll come to him later. Um, He's had quite a kind of... It's topsy-turvy year, we could say. Um, but, you know, Chris Grayling, ally of Theresa May,
1: ran her leadership campaign, and he still clings into office extraordinarily. It's bizarre how he's still in post, but I think you, you probably hit the nail on the head there. He's a key ally of the Prime Minister, and as this year has shown, she needs people around her who she can trust, however incompetent they may be, I think.
0: Yeah. and And... I'm scratching my head a bit here to remember what did happen with reshuffle apart from Chris Grayley. Justine Greening left, I seem to remember. Again, probably a row over Brexit as much as anything else, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: well, it started off about grammar schools um, because the 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 Prime Minister wants a new wave of grammar schools and Justine Greening, comp school Justine from uh, from Rotherham, she was opposed to it. Mm. Um, And there was a big row uh, brewing about Heathrow as well because the government was going to try and force that through. Um, Justine Greening, her constituency, Putney, South West London, right under the flight path, and used to live not far from it. You get quite a lot of noise there, so she was always going to oppose that. And then, of course, the Prime Minister tried to move her to a different job. Justine refused to go, um, and she ended up being sacked, effectively. Um, and now the Prime Minister's created quite a powerful enemy on the mm-hmm. Conservative backbenches because she's such a, a staunch Remainer.
0: Yeah, she's joined the what we call the naughty corner of the Anna Soubries and the Dominic Greaves and the kind of uh, Nicky Morgans of the kind of you know the Tory Remain kind of you kind know of. Little kind of red-out, you know, a bit like mm. kind of kind of that asterix village, and kind of you know where in the last corner of the Tory party, yeah. which hasn't been conquered by the Brexiteers yet, mm. they're still holding out. Um, so kind of roll on. I mean, kind of March kind of was actually kind of dominated primarily by by the Salisbury poisonings, wasn't it? It was that was a the kind of the rare bit of when politics almost behaved itself, except it wasn't brilliant for Jeremy Corbyn. I seem to remember.
2: No, well, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting time when politically on the whole people were sort of coming together in this kind of national response to to Salisbury um but Corbyn initially kind of gave the Russians what should we say the benefit of the doubt a little bit (laughs) um and took a while before he he condemned uh the Kremlin and it kind of fed into what a lot of people already thought about the Labour leader and his um just say rather more sympathetic approach to to Russia than than the, the rest of, of of British politics, um, and eventually I think he did kind of come on board and support what the Prime Minister was doing. Her, by in contrast, she you know she has been um, you know not known for taking decisive action on lots of lots of issues, but when it came to this, she did move fairly quickly. And, you know, perhaps ironically, it showed the support she had with, with Europe because of the number of countries that also moved to expel uh, diplomats at the same time. And she did manage to quickly build this consensus about the, the response and kind of shows her power um, internationally, which obviously was then kind of undermined by Brexit pretty swiftly afterwards.
0: Yeah. And what was interesting, I thought, with Corbyn is, you know, why was quite a lot of support on the Labour benches? for his domestic agenda mm. and and, a, and a quite a lot of unity mm. behind it yeah on two key issues Brexit in particular the Labour Party remains divided as the Tory party and also there's a lot of kind of the what we would call kind of the older MPs from the Blair Brown generation who are, are are uneasy about Corbyn's kind of view of kind of America being kind of the kind of the world enemy, yeah. this kind of anti-Americanism policy, which is much more sympathetic towards the kind of the, the Russians in this regard. And, it, it, and you know, he was condemned, you know, to, Labour MPs stood up in the statements o- on following the kind of triple poisoning and, and you know, condemned him to his face. It, it's still a kind of, it's a running sore there for the Labour Party, I
1: think. Yeah, I, I think for for a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's critics and even those who were broadly sympathetic to him. They still had concerns about sort of his um, his stance on various international issues. His, you know, he's, he's perceived as always willing to side with whoever's against America and the West. And in this case, he, he you know, essentially he failed to believe um, the word of British intelligence. Mm or at least gave it the same weight as the nonsense coming out of the Kremlin and and on Russia today. Um, And that really did sort of play into a lot of people's fears, I think. Um, And when you contrasted it with the Prime Minister, as Nick said, very quickly um, built this international consensus that led to dozens of Russian agents being booted out of embassies across across the West. Um, That provided a real dividing line there, and it played into people's fears that Corbyn on internationalism Um, He's not someone who will always, critics would say, have Britain's best interests at heart. Let's just stick with Corbyn's year anyway. I'm now on the
0: subject. Because, you know, roll back 2017, he came out of a general election. You had thousands of people chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, at at Glastonbury. He became this extraordinarily popular figure. Uh, And this year, he's had a much tougher time. Now, obviously, being leader of the opposition... Midterm is always difficult, but we kind of—they didn't do brilliantly in the, in the May local elections. They didn't make the kind of a, sort of gains you were hoped to would make, and then you had uh, Jazz Fest. Nicola, you went to Jazz Fest, was did. it? What Jezfest. was Jezfest? Jezfest? Remind me. Was and but it was a kind of s- slight come down from the, from the kind of you know the adulation of of Glastonbury. Is that fair or not?
2: Yeah, I mean, I to give it its full title labor yeah. live the whole idea behind it was a kind of festival uh for the left um music talk so on they vastly overstretched themselves um they hired a big uh, park in in north london and uh, it's fair to say that ticket sales were not what they expected, and they've lost a lot of money on this project. Was um, this
0: like one of those kind of winter wonderland disasters? <laughs> <that> <laughs> so it was a slightly scrappy Christmas tree and, and a rather sad-looking kind of couple of kind of kind of animals with horns on them to make them look <laughs> like reindeer. Was it like that, or was it kind of?
2: Well, I mean, the the, the kind of run-up was beset by all these. Uh, Kind of disagreements about who was performing, um whether you know half of these seventeen were going to be there or, or not, um but the actual day this was the really for me this was a really unfortunate thing about it was because people who were there on the day really enjoyed it. A lot of the tents where there were debates and talks happening were full were like overflowing now the only like band that I recognized was clean bandit um who performed you know, great, fine. But they just shouldn't have tried to do a music festival. If they'd had this kind of, you know, festival ideas or whatever, then, you know, maybe it could have worked. But, you know, I don't think having the kind of darlings of the left, Owen Jones, etc., in a, you know, in a park in North London is really the thing that's going to sway, like, the swing voters that they need in in, uh, the Midlands to to come to Labour. And it kind of fed into all the... The worst criticisms of corbyn and the, the way he does things really
0: yeah. okay we, i'm i'm we're going to come on to the troubles of a conservative party we're not <laughs> I'm just let's let's get labor's kind of bad summer up away because he then went from from, from from this slightly disappointing uh labor live event to a, a kind of a row about anti-semitism which they found very difficult to shake off wasn't it and it, it, it's kind of and it's still rumbling on now i mean we yesterday we had a resignation of, of um, Ivan Lewis, he, uh, MP had been suspended, but he's quit the party. We had Frank Field, who's quit the party in protest to anti-Semitism. Why did Labour get itself in this position?
1: How did it happen? It, this has been a running sore for the Labour mm. Party, um, and it's given people who you know, are sceptical of the project anyway um, ammunition to go after Jeremy Corbyn, I must say, I think, with some legitimacy to, to a certain extent. Um, Corbyn has always been a critic of Israel um, and obviously a vocal... Uh, supporter of the Palestinians and their rights um, to, to have their own state. Now, the problem is where that becomes uh, mired in anti Semitism and leads to criticism um, where it becomes conflated, I suppose. And there are lots of Jeremy Corbyn supporters online who, who like him standing up for Palestinians. They quite clearly go far too far in their criticism of Israel, and they do, it does come into anti Semitism. And it's been the case that the, the Labour leadership hasn't been quick enough to condemn and it's not been strong enough to condemn. Now, I personally don't think for one second Jeremy Corbyn is personally anti-Semitic, should say that. I do think the party has tolerated within its ranks for too long people who are anti-Semitic and he's not come out, well, certainly earlier in the summer, didn't come out quick enough and strong enough. And there was all this row then about a drop thing. The guidelines on what constitutes anti-semitism and how they ended up in such a mess about arguing over a couple of paragraphs. It was an absolute gift to people who wanted him to come out and be a strong opponent of anti-semitism and then quibbling over, over these paragraphs. I mean, it was an absolute, you know, a massive own goal and it need not have happened.
0: Yeah, and, and then you've got Jewish Labour MPs like Luciana Berger who ended up having to go to a Labour Party conference with an armed guard, with a bodyguard. You know, we saw her
1: walking around with this bodyguard. I mean, that's outrageous. And, and,
0: and the abuse that people like her are getting is is online and is 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 quite horrific. I mean, she keeps posting on on social media some of the kind of you know the, the insults held at her. but really kind of you know, that's no, disgusting. I mean, quite rightly,
1: people have gone to prison over over mm-hmm. some of these these insults and these tropes that they they wage against Luciana and other Jewish mm. Labour MPs um, but you know the leadership has to do more to crack down on this.
2: I think one of the, the problems that they've had as well is that a lot of these people especially online may be you know uh, JC4PM or you know supporting uh, Labour but aren't actually members and there is a difficulty there in how you tackle it and I think I think they were actually in denial for quite a long time mm. about how serious this was, and what impression it was giving off. And I think, you know, as you said, there are obviously Labour MPs who have been outspoken and resistant to Jeremy Corbyn from the beginning, and there was, you know, some overlap with those who are being outspoken on anti-Semitism. And I think this bunker mentality that a lot of people around Jeremy have had from the beginning, because initially they did get attacked they just kind of turn in on themselves and, and were really... didn't seem to understand how it looked to the outside world, that they were either denying that antisemitism was happening, which most people could see it was, or, you know, they were downplaying it and they kept saying, oh, well, it's being weaponized by our opponents. And the kind of response is, well, it doesn't actually matter. If it's there, then you really need to sort this out. And I think, you know... I don't know why... Corbyn himself was so slow to react, but he eventually did an article for the Evening Standard, but it was kind of months too late into this. And, you know, the summer is is one of these times when the the opposition can actually get a bit of their message across because, you know, government's not, not... Parliament's not sitting, etc., and it was just dominated by this whole row, and it kind of—I think it kind of set them back months. Mm-hmm. It, it's totally. They had loads th- of plans. I, I thought
0: one of the interesting things to come out of it was a, was a, a new dynamic which we saw, which was John MacDonald, mm. the Shadow Chancellor, kind of showing his frustration at way that yeah. b- 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 his friend, long-standing ally Jeremy Corbyn, was failing to close this down and, and move the agenda on. And that I thought that's developed throughout the year. We've seen John McDonnell become the most high-profile. Media figure of Labour Party, he's the one who's being much more pragmatic. Sh- looks like he's hungrier for power, getting f- and, and and I wouldn't say there's um they haven't fallen out, but I would say there's now clear tensions between John Macdonald and Jeremy Corbyn. Even though, they, as I, I can't stress enough, they are very very old friends who kind of, you know fought in adversity. I think it's quite an interesting kind of like how the party's developed over the last six months.
1: Yeah, Macdonald had a shake up of the people around him as well, yeah. which I, I think. Professionalises operation to, to a much greater extent. Um, and yeah, there is a, an obvious divide now between Shadow Chancellor's team and Shadow Chancellor and the Leader of the Opposition's team. Um, and I think Corbyn's an ideologue. There's nothing necessarily wrong with being ideological, but you also, if you want to get stuff done, you have to be in power. Right? It's it's no good. Being a, a fantastic campaigner and shouting on the sidelines if you actually want to change something. And I think McDonald sees that and he, you know, he very quickly, at the start, you know, when he became Shadow Chancellor in 2015, there was a huge row about his previous um, alleged sympathies for the IRA. He apologised for that straight away, said he'd been wrong in certain things he'd mm-hmm. said and did his best to shut it down. And to a, certain, you know, a large extent, that worked. He realised what he had to say to appeal to the people who, you know, those swing voters who are essential for winning a general election. I think, as you said, he is hungrier for power than Jeremy Corbyn and he's prepared to uh, dilute some of his views in order to, to try and get into the turning street. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's move on because um, we're going to run out of time to talk about all the kind of disastrous things which happened to the Tory party. I'm mean, i just quickly looking at my my crib sheet here. I've forgotten in April, Amber Rudd resigned as Home Secretary over the Windrush scandal. But uh, then in June, we had the Heathrow vote when Boris spent at least £20,000 of taxpayers' money to fly for a one-day trip to Afghanistan so he didn't have to be present. (laughs) Um, A junior minister called uh, Greg Hans, who showed much more kind of honour by resigning on the issue because he had said in his election manifesto that he would oppose Heathrow. I think Boris had said something similar, but did a bunk. Uh, um, Then we had um, the Trump visit in... July which was kind of wonderful in many respects and absolutely horrific in many others I thought but he I mean he started off Trump by by giving an interview in which he decided to slag off Theresa May's Brexit plan so, and it went <laughs> kind of downhill from then on is that right Nicola?
2: Yeah I think he then <laughs> tried to deny that he said any of that even though it was recorded and there was <laughs> uh, a lot of evidence and he I think it had come out just the day as they were doing their um, joint big press conference at Checkers, and he kind of stood alongside her and had to then kind of apologise. And I mean, I suppose the amazing thing about him is he has enough front to, to kind of brazen that out and just kind of go on with it. And I said, can't
1: can't tell you how much I enjoyed this summer. Not just the fantastic <laughs> weather; it's been brilliant. Yeah, it's not it's not all been about Brexit. And there was you say we, we went from NATO where. Trump had had this extraordinary row with, well not even a row, it was, a, you know, a, a monologue really, a diatribe at, uh, at the NATO Secretary General and then gets, on, then gets on a plane, comes to the UK and just as, he's about, as you say, to do this press conference was made, there's this uh, newspaper article where he's slacking her off and she's got to stand next to him, and I'm just watching it on the TV and it's, you know, the journalist had been there, had been in the sunshine for about two hours, baking in the garden at Chequers. And just watching, you know, you, you've, uh, the sense of British pride, there's our Prime Minister and she's been humiliated <laughs> by this numpty from across <laughs> the Atlantic. And she's invited him and she's in her own garden and there he is, like having a go. And then, of course, he said that, you know, I think, it, I can't remember the exact phrase used, but Boris would make a great Prime Minister. You know, her arch rival, who mm. humiliated her week by week. And, oh, was just extraordinary, it was gold to watch. Yeah, and I'm, then
2: he um, posted in front of the Queen. Oh, that's right. We oh, did.
1: Yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: And all the I, I like, left her waiting as well for
0: a yeah. long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then we had that uh, balloon of him flying over Parliament Square as well, and all the protesters, the you know,
2: yeah. huge
0: protests large, across large the country. Large, numbers out on the streets. Yeah. yeah. And, and Now, I may have got the chronologically wrong here, but at some point we had the Chequers, other Chequers meeting, which was society mm. the Brexit plans, and shortly afterwards David Davis resigned and then a day, was it a day later or two days Boris Johnson resigned. Is that, was that all in July? I yeah, it was,
1: about, it was less than 24 hours in July, I think. D.D. Mm-hmm. D. was in the evening, and then Boris felt, you know, if D.D.'s gone, oh, well, he's boosted his leadership ambitions, therefore I must go as well. You know, but the principle d- of that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he did also need time to get the photographer to, to come and uh, That's snap him writing his resignation letters. So that might explain a little bit. And there was the supposed today. to be
1: a big, important meeting with some of our foreign allies taking place, which that never happened, despite the... the Foreign allies coming over and waiting patiently while Boris was too busy, as you say, posing for his resignation letter photograph. And and then he he decided to squat in his
0: grace and favour apartment for for three weeks as well afterwards and he refused to leave.
1: He had a bit of (laughs) uh, trouble in his home life, shall we say. That's Uh, true, that also
0: came out about that time. Yeah,
1: so uh, perhaps he needed a bit of a bolt hole. What a nice bolt hole to have though, the uh, Foreign (laughs) Secretary's grace and favour apartment which he was allowed to stay in for weeks on end. At our expense, some of it. Yeah. So now let's, sorry to get into the the thickets of
0: Brexit here, but what do they decide at this Chequers cabinet meeting, which led to all these resignations, because it wasn't just DD and, and, and Boris Johnson, you know, the other Brexit minister, Steve Baker, resigned, various others, who I can't bother to name, such as Swell of Braverman well, also went eventually, didn't they? I uh, mean, you know, we had a, a kind of fairly big run of, 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 of junior ministers and party aides resigning over it as well. What, what, why was it such
1: a big deal? Who, who wishes to explain that well, to me? We, <laughs> without getting too mind I think it was because the Brexit that. The reason why he was proposing, still is proposing, uh was seen as too soft by the, the Brexiteers. Um, you know, they didn't like the alignment that we would end up having to take with the EU in order to keep our trade. Um and yeah, it was it was too much for some of the Brexiteers. Some of them, you know, Boris particularly, I think the his personal leadership ambitions fueled his resignation as much as any ideological or puritanical objections to what was being proposed. But what what I didn't like about the whole thing was that the cabinet sits there and signs off mm. the Chequers deal. So they've all agreed it, right? And then they start to resign. Well why not have the guts to do it? And stand up, you know, you can do it with a certain amount of honour. If you stand up in cabinet, I think Heseltine did this under Thatcher, didn't he? Was it was it something stormed out of He Thatcher did over and, over Westland. Over there, Westland.
0: But, yeah. To be fair to Heseltine, he did it from Downing Street and was mm. able to walk down Whitehall. Mm. They were stuck in a yeah. middle of a kind of is it the Berkshire countryside and if you, Buckinghamshire, countryside, Buckinghamshire countryside. And, yeah. and, and if you um, if you resign, you no longer get your ministerial car. And I gather it was quite a long walk. to when nearest was taxi rank. That is true. <laughs> but it was a lovely so evening. Cut all the
2: buses. Please.
1: But um, you should, have, you should have had the honour to do it there and then and say to her face and, and in front of all the ministers. No, I don't agree with this. I can't sign off on this. I resign now.
2: There's been quite a lot of that through Brexit, though, hasn't there? Especially with the the Irish backstop deal, hmm. which, you know, obviously Davis brought up uh, since he's left, and Boris did. And, and again, you think, well, you were there when this happened. Well, it happened last December. Last December, December. Last yeah. December, yeah. Did, I mean, did you not read it? Did you not understand it? Or was it just not expedient for you to to go? So it's... You know they they are claiming that this is a, you know, an ideological belief, but it's quite difficult to to always to always believe that and it's interesting thinking back to that checkers because it was a kind of weekend away wasn't it like a like a sort of away day from the thick of it and that same sense of urgency that we have to sort this out it, we have that now, and actually that that felt like crunch time you know there's been so many moments throughout the year which have felt like. This is crunch time for Brexit. And she basically took her whole cabinet and stuck them, as you say, in a beautiful house, but in the middle of nowhere where they couldn't escape. And they had to hammer out Brexit and d- try and d- make it work.
1: When we look, when you plot the charts of, of bullet points of the dates and the things that happened, and we do it in chronological order, you think, well, that bullet point should have happened much higher mm-hmm. up. This should have happened there. You know, you should, Before she triggered Article 50 on March 29th, uh, 2017, months, or weeks before that would have been the time to get the Cabinet together and agree the plan. So we could have done things much better and we would not be in this situation that we are now. We're, you know, with your Brexit here Remainer, I don't think anyone agrees that where we are is the right place to be. And it need not have happened like this, you know, how many times, I mean, we can go back to the German election she called, snap German election, June last year. But at every point, or almost every point, she's messed things up unnecessarily.
0: I think at some point when this is looked back on by either an official inquiry or by the historians they go what was she thinking by one setting down red lines in her first conference speech as party leader which she knew she was going to have to raise and two why did she trigger article 50 so early when she had no proper game plan in place Mm. and there were two disastrous decisions for which she she, i still don't think she's actually been properly held to account i mean the reason you're right to say this i think the reason we're in such a mess is that she decided unilaterally to interpret the referendum result and and made it all about immigration, which is, I'm not saying it wasn't a big factor, but I'm not sure it was the unique factor about it. And (laughs) and then she unilaterally decided what sort of Brexit we were going to have without trying to reach any form of consensus. And one of the things which actually I find quite insulting is she's now Mm. saying, rally round my deal in the national interest yeah. And, without, and trying to tell Labour MPs it's their duty to forge a consensus around it, when she never made any effort right at the beginning to reach out across. Well, what is actually, I think, something where there should be some cross-party consensus on, because that's the only way we can get out of this mess.
2: Yeah, and I think you know. Over. <laughs> There's been some suggestion as well for for members of the cabinet that Parliament should now have a big debate about if if her well if her deal fails, I guess. Um, what kind of Brexit uh, Parliament wants and you sort of think what now like that was the thing to do at the very beginning like you know she could have easily said I didn't campaign for Brexit I I'm you know I'm gonna make it happen let's have a national debate. let's you know have a debate on TV if you want let's go and talk to different people and this strange stubbornness that kicked in really kind of quite early on, where she was the kind of protector of Brexit, which she hadn't campaigned for and therefore didn't, as you say, there was no clear idea. I mean, the immigration thing is, is kind of endlessly interesting, how obsessed she is with immigration, even when, you know, everyone else seems to have kind of moved on at this point.
1: Yeah, and I think, it's, it's, it, you know, the referendum result of 52% to 48%, you know, I, I've, think that's decisive. Yeah. But it's not if you pick and say, I'm gonna do Brexit and that's that's the be all and end all, you're automatically trying alienating forty-eight percent of of voters. And now given the number of Labour voters who voted leave, but who will never ever vote for the Conservatives, you're narrowing your field of support. What you should have done is say, well look, we've you know had a really divisive election, now it's time to come together everyone's going to have to compromise but we should accept the result as a country and work out the best way forward and I say that to MPs of all colours and you know I want to hear what you've got to say but Nick's right she's so stubborn she just can't do that and I I don't understand this like force field around her that doesn't hear opposing views and 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 think well actually it might have a point you know if if we accept all elections are won from the centre right which I think they are You have to win over some of those Remainers. You can't just tell them, you know, you're citizens of nowhere. You can't tell them their views don't matter. You need their support if you want to stay in power and eventually start doing things that aren't all Brexit. Okay, I'm going to quickly rattle through a few things because we'll try and stick to the kind of, like, the the blow by blow account. The
0: quote of the year came in, in June from Danny Dyer, who called Brexit a mad riddle and then said, where's David Cameron? Is he in niece of his trotters up? Which I still think was the finest <laughs> line we've had from anybody on politics in the last 12 months. Then we got a whiz through the Trump visit into Theresa May going to Africa and dancing. Dancing oh. came slight theme for the prime minister. Just gonna get that in there because then we got to the party conference season in September and Vince Cable had his erotic Spasm.
1: But well, it, was, it wasn't,
0: was it, it? Well, explain this to me, Ben, on oh, Lib Dem expert. Was, yeah, this so, is one of the sad days for the end of the Vince Empire, isn't it? It
1: was. I mean, you know, the sage of uh, the credit crisis, and then he sacrificed his principles to go into government with, uh, with the Tories and prop them up for five years, and now, <laughs> now he's on his way out as Lib Dem leader, although we don't actually know where he's going. And the, the Lib Dems were desperate to try and get some publicity for their conference. You know, those of us who were down there, five lovely days by the seaside, there wasn't an awful lot of news to report. Um, so they come up with this line that they briefed the night before that he's going to s- accuse Braves of Tears of enjoying some sort of erotic spasm. Now, it was an awful image, you know. It wasn't thinking good, of, was it, no. Everyone winced when, when, you know, and thought, well, this is not very nice. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, when he came to say it, uh, he's managed to fluff his lines because we we're all there looking oh he's in speech he's going to say it he's, and then what did he just say and it was ex- exotic spresm he came out with I mean it Which was just such a given mech, this was about the it.
0: only news coverage we lived in got all year that was pretty yeah. bad yeah. yeah I mean they have had a uh, I think they realise that you know Vince has kind of pre-announced his retirement as well, hasn't it? It is time for the party to move on. Yeah, they, that's probably yeah. enough of the Lib Dems for, for this review. Labour actually had, I thought, one of the, a better conferences than expected. There was a two big rows going on. Mm-hmm. One was over the the changes to the leadership rules, which um, uh, ended with a score draw, as far as I can remember. Yeah. They were going to have a, a kind of another deputy leader to go alongside Tom Watson. This was going to be a power grab by the Corbynistas to employ their own woman uh, and. Uh, and that kind of was shelved amongst a kind of a backroom kind of bust up and then I thought a very interesting debate on whether they should support a second referendum or not and again divisions within the Labour Party on this but the debate was quite grown up I think Keir Starmer pulled a blinder by by kind of inserting his speech and saying look this is now our policy whether you like it or mm. not um, and you could see there was discomfort between the Labour leadership and the party members of this I think it's one of the problems Jeremy is wrestling with that, that his own views on Europe he's a long-standing Eurosceptic are out of step where most of members are most of Labour supporters are um, but it
1: actually wasn't a bad conference I thought for Labour they came away quite united there were a lot of people there um, yeah it was, it was quite professional I thought at the conference I mean of the 2015, 16, oh, so it was the fourth conference of Corbyn's leadership and by far yeah. and away it was, it was the best I think yeah. um, and you know they, they had proper stories they had relatively good coverage there was no massive there was certainly no anti-Semitism row overshadowing it at that point as there had been the year previously um, I think On, the, I think Kia's done a very good job of getting them to where they are I do think that's a row that's going to blow up early next year though because Kia's managed to keep it together, largely by kicking the can down the road. Um, At some point, you can't do that forever, and when they're going to have to decide whether or not they're going to back the second referendum, Um, and some people in the Shadow Cabinet really want one, some people in the Shadow Cabinet are sceptical of it, and there are others who really don't want one. And Corbyn really doesn't want one, and the people around him are desperately worried about what message it will give to um, Labour hardcore supporters, you know, uh, traditional supporters in the heartlands, in sort of South Wales, the Midlands, parts of the North, if Labour is seen to try and renege on Brexit.
0: An important stat here 35 of Labour's top 50 target seats voted leave. You can see why this is a dilemma for the yeah. leadership. And, and, and I could I do actually have some sympathy for Corbyn on this one. I know it's a kind of, it's a difficult bit of triangulation, yeah. but I can see why he he's kind of, you know, slightly reluctant to endorse fully a second referendum at this well, stage.
1: As a, you know, 32 years on the back benches, having a go at Europe, you know, voting with the yeah. Tory hardcore Brexiteers um, for three decades, you know, you yeah. don't have this huge, huge change of heart just because yeah. you become leader of the and, party.
0: And one of the most successful campaigns of the year has been the People's Vote campaign. Ooh. I mean, it went from being a kind of small group of people to a kind of slightly fringe idea to, in October, seventy thousand, seven hundred thousand 700,000 people mm. on the streets of London calling for a second referendum. And that's kind of, you know, if you compare that with the rallies turning up for Raj for, you know, kind of, you know, save Brexit, it's when you're getting a couple of hundred people. This is quite an impressive achievement to make this so central to the, the agenda. It I is. And i agree, Nicola? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm always sceptical about marches and rallies and how much they really achieve. And I think there's a lot of people who support the People's Vote who are essentially making themselves feel better uh, because they really don't like Brexit and they really don't like the decision. And this is a way of them, you know, kind of giving themselves hope, basically, that something's going to change. That being said, I do think things have shifted a bit in the last month or so this is the only time when I've even thought it would be even possible and that's largely down to Parliament I think Um, excuse me and I think Parliament for ages felt like it had no role in the whole Brexit process and as it's come up to the meaningful vote, you know you had people like Hilary Benn putting down an amendment Dominic Grieve like people using various parliamentary mechanisms to kind of hijack the way that that it was it was um being uh, debated and i think you know partly i'm sure it is the fact that there is this huge campaign for people's vote but i think there's also you know relatively limited options to to basically get get us out of what is this this weird stasis at the moment um about what you know that she doesn't have the parliamentary numbers to get her deal through and then what she do, you know. Then what next? No one, there's various charts, but no one's <laughs> quite figured out what actually so happened. Can next. I just hold that there, Nicola? Because I was going to quickly whiz
0: through a couple of <laughs> them. So we had Theresa May doing more dancing as she to ABBA
1: as she came <laughs> to on to be give out her, her.
2: She owned that, didn't she? I
1: I thought she got
0: aware of
2: it,
1: actually. I've, um, she did, but I remember the star of that was Geoffrey Cox. For yeah. that yes, this is the Attorney General who is <laughs> yeah. a
0: warm-up act, who, who is kind of, you know, somewhere between a kind of, you know, bum. <laughs> blessed <laughs> Captain Hook and kind of Amdram Star, Gandalf Gandalf, were,
1: yeah, it was fantastic yeah, and, really. and actually
0: overshadowed the Boris Valley mm. the night before where he got a thousand of the you know, the kind of, the kind of Boris faithful turning up, but actually it was a bit of a damp squib in terms, of, it wasn't much sp- substance to his speech, mm. it was kind of Yeah, I
1: was in the room for that and it was basically him desperately trying to rally the troops, but reading out various versions of his Daily Telegraph columns you know, and, and saying things which he can't he can't put into practice because he's out of the cabinet now. Anyway, um, you know the people who are in the room loved it, but they had gone there because they love Boris. Yeah. Um, There's not. Yeah. There's no real substance so, to it at all.
0: And any conference bounce for Theresa May, if there was one, I mean, it went better than the year before. Yes. That was the one thing which everybody <laughs> agreed on. Was was going to disappear almost immediately. She went to Strasbourg for this EU summit. And Europe said no in 27 different languages, didn't they? No, no, (laughs) no, no, whatever they said, they all said no. And she came away quite humiliated from that. She presented her Brexit plan, the Chequers plan, and they say, this is an on runner.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the UK negotiators got this wrong. They thought they'd persuaded the EU teams to accept certain things. And then th- th- we went to this emergency summit in Strasbourg. Lovely city, by the way. Never been before. Sorry, no, Salzburg. Salzburg. Uh, Salzburg. Salzburg in yeah. the Austrian hills. Thank you for quick. My um, terrible. I've got Buckingham and Barca mixed up, and I've got Salzburg <laughs> and Strasbourg. My apologies. Um, so, yeah, Salzburg. Lovely little city. Um, we went there, and it quickly became clear that everything. Prime Ministers and Prime Ministers' people thought they were going to get was not happening. And it quickly went from being what they thought was going to be a good news story to being neutral, to being an absolute disaster. And she was humiliated. I mean, we, we probably use that word too much, um, but this time she actually was. And uh, within, you know, the next day after getting back from Salzburg, she did uh, what I think for her was unprecedented in terms of a statement to camera mm. um, in Downing Street itself. Um, accusing the EU of failing to show Britain respect, and by Britain, she means her, mm. failing to show her any respect. And there was, um, it was probably the lowest point, I think, of, uh, of the EU negotiations. And it took a while to try and recover from that. And it, it did, you know, it used up valuable time when we should have been trying to thrash out a deal, uh, yeah, having this, this unseemly round And then roll
0: on to November, and everything started to come to a head within the Tory party, didn't it? I, I think we're going to. Uh, the, the Brexiteers, the uh, the ERG as we call them, the European Research Group, yeah, um, which don't do much research, but do a lot <laughs> of resentment and recriminations, they, they suddenly seem to have started to, start to kind, of, kind of, it dawned on them that May's proposed deal was not what they wanted. And it always revolved around this issue of the Irish backstop, which we've mentioned earlier about this would mean that if no solution could be found to keeping a, a, a border open between kind of the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland, then Britain will remain in the EU indefinitely. And as the EU kept on saying, we can't have a guarantee which can be time limited. People said they, the Brexiters, wanted it to be time limited. And and they, it's almost like, as you said earlier, um, this was like obvious from last December when we signed up to it but it, take, it took them kind of 11 months yeah. to appreciate the implications of it so we're in this crazy situation of we got yet more resignations so Dominic Rob, the Brexit secretary, we've now had three Brexit sectories this year one day this will be a quiz second question for can you name the three Brexit sectories of 2018 <laughs> Esther McVeigh also left not a lot of love lost there no most people quite grateful but as Work and Pensions Secretary. Amber Rudd came back as Work and Pensions Secretary. <laughs> and then we had, who wants to do it? The 48 letters, which never quite got to 48.
2: <laughs>
0: what yeah, happened there? A
2: the, the slight failure to count on the part of the ERG and the, this sort of all built up. I think it was over a weekend where it was like, this is it, this is fine. You know, we have been talking about it for months. They finally got the 48 le- letters they needed to trigger. their no confidence vote. only they hadn't. And actually that was a real embarrassment for people like Jacob rees mogg and Steve Baker and kind of took away quite a bit of their power in that whole failure because there was a whole um, few days of, of them just kind of not knowing where to go from that. I mean, the, the beauty of the Tory system is that apart from the chairman of the 92... Uh, nineteen twenty two committee, nobody actually knows how many letters, you know, he has and he is very uh, very much enjoys the fact that no one else knows this information. So if you're a Tory MP you don't quite know if you're gonna be the forty eighth. Um of course that they did eventually get the forty eight letters but um later on from, from that point and um Prime Minister was absolutely fine. Basically.
0: So let, let's kind of Roll into the last month, December, which are actually out of the 12 of them was probably the craziest. In terms of Theresa May goes to Brussels for the final EU summit of the year, again she comes back with zero progress, and then the Tory party descend into kind of anarchy almost, don't they? They all get very heated. Can yeah, Talk us through the last week. I know it was only two weeks ago or a week ago, but we were all still kind to of like... It's been so feeble. Um, <laughs> yeah, eventually,
1: the, the, you know, things started to really move against Theresa May, and people thought, hang on, we're leaving the EU in three and a half months and we're going to be stuck in this backstop, stuck in the customs union effectively, in perpetuity, at least theoretically. So at, the, at this point, it, she's effectively lost the support of the DUP, meaning she hasn't got a majority in the Commons. So the E.R.G. started to move against her. They got up to their numbers, the forty-eight, and it all broke early on. the uh, you know, just before Prime Minister's Questions, she comes out and says she will fight it with everything I've got. It was sort of Margaret Thatcher lights, if you like. Um, and then she, you know, she did quite well at Prime Minister's Questions. Um, and then the, the voting open, and you know, already it was obvious she was going to win this yeah. and win it. We thought at the time quite comfortably. When you look at the, the eventual shakedown, I think it was one hundred and seventeen of her MPs. Um, voted against her, which when you strip out the payroll votes of um, government ministers, uh, parliamentary private secretaries, um, it was worked out as a majority of backbenchers uh, almost had voted because against her. Um, yeah. So And
0: don't forget a week before this she'd lost three votes in just
1: over an hour. She'd lost right, three government minutes. been held in contempt but for the um, first time ever, a yeah. government held in contempt. Yeah, sixty three minutes of, of madness. And and to survive
0: she had to say, I'm not going to stand as yeah. leader of the next general election. So, so to she win signed that... her own death warrant. I mean, how long that's...
2: She did say the next general election in 2022. That is 2022. a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Nicola
1: read the small print. <laughs> just in case. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. Yeah, she was. Fought, she would basically... Be, when she addressed the 1922 committee, just moments before that confidence vote, mm. she, um, she said to them, you know, I, I won't fight the next general election.
0: And she's had to pull a meaningful vote, i.e. the vote on her Brexit deal, because she knows the numbers aren't there at the moment. So, tough question now. Ben, Nicola, look into your crystal ball. I'll do the same. It's there. (laughs) What's
1: going to happen next year? I think she will get some form of the deal through the House. I still think, at the moment I can't see where the numbers come from, but she's running down the clock. There are certain MPs, and you know, talks are going on with the DUP between Arlene Foster and very senior people in number 10 and they the people in number 10 think they're getting closer if you get the DUP back on side it'll bring a lot Mm -hmm. of the Brexiteers back on side in the Tory party it won't necessarily give her a majority then but then you'll get some Labour MPs who will think I can't do this to my constituents, I hate the deal I hate Theresa May, I can't do it to my constituents, I'm going to vote for it Some of them will hold their noses and do it and defy a Labour whip. I think she'll get it through the House.
0: Nicola?
2: Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with that reading, to be honest. Um, I I suppose the, the question will be when the vote comes and how close it is down to the wire. Because I think the closer you get, the harder it becomes for Labour MPs to vote against it because you are staring down the barrel of no deal and, you know have whatever you're presented with, you are actually the ones who hold that power. I think you're right that the DEP is going to be crucial. I mean, it's really difficult to see what she can do about the backstop to change it.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if the first week of January, she goes to a few European capitals, sets something out, I need this, You know, if you want this deal to go Mm. through, you have to give me something. It won't be legally binding, because you can't reopen the withdrawal agreement, which is the legally binding text. It could be an addendum... And as long as it's enough, and you will have some Tory brawters who will not take the word of Brussels, you know, understandably for some of them, Um, I think the Prime Minister will get something ahead of the meaningful vote which is due the week starting January the 14th. She could lose that vote, and that triggers a whole new set of circumstances where Labour reckons it will call a confidence vote in the government, but, which she will win, by the way, Um, if she brings a vote back to the House weeks after that, with the clock that much closer to ticking down to March 29th, and she's got something, I think she'll get through. I don't necessarily think she'll get it through the first attempt, but I do think she'll get through eventually.
2: Yeah, and don't we now have a situation because of the Grievement where Parliament has some role if there's no deal?
1: Yes, but that's unclear as to what that will be, <laughs> and then that's assuming there's a consensus in the House for anything. Well, it's,
0: uh, yeah, I it. think the, the Brexiteers enough of them will probably come round cause it, they, they, it's not going to be a choice between her deal and no deal it'll be a choice between her deal or no Brexit and that's oh. the thing they fear more than anything else and the, they, the key they, player they, in they, is they, Michael Gove Yep, who's been the most pragmatic yeah, he's Does been getting it over the line yeah. Okay. one last question very quickly thank you so much for doing this who's had a good year who's had a really bad year
2: uh, good year, John MacDonald. Yep, because uh, he was everywhere. <laughs> you couldn't go to anything at conference without seeing him, and he's you know convincing everyone that he is a very pragmatic politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad year, Boris Johnson.
1: I think the prime minister will think she's had a good year because she's still there, the, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the other person who I think has had a good year, bizarrely is Amber Rudd, Mm. forced to resign. Inquiry rules that it wasn't her cock-up, it was officials badly briefing her. She's back in the cabinet and she's in a job where, you know, she she can rehabilitate herself at work and pensions. That's been such a basket case with some real hardcore right-wingers doing some really awful things. She's not as bad as a lot of them. I think she can do some good, though.
0: I'm going to give my good year to backbenchers because Mm. I think people like... Karen Buck, who got through a bill today, which got, literally today, which has got Royal sent to make homes fit for human habitation. I think Yvette Cooper doing amazing stuff as chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee. And I think kind of Stella Creasy, kind of winning campaign after campaign, I think kind of role of a, and, and I'll add on to that, I'll add on Tracy Crouch for resigning of oh principle, yes. principal on, on fixed or betting terminals and that, actually yeah. winning it. But I just think generally the backbenchers have reasserted our authority in this, in this last year and, and, and actually are doing, while everybody else is losing their head, are doing little decent bits of, of legislation which deserve credit. Um, and I'm also going to give a little tick point to, to Sajid Javik, because I think mm. he's, he's actually now become the favourite to be the next Tory leader. And although he's not the finished product and he's a terrible public speaker, actually just getting into that position is quite a clever bit of politics. Could mm. uh, kind have of much more successful. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, much better in the way Jeremy Hunt's doing it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. and, my, and my bad year is to all the old Etonians, because they've really... Messed up, haven't they? I mean, you, you know, we've seen through Jacob Rees Well, God knows why he had any kind of credib- credibility in the first place, but you know, now he looks a fool. Uh, Boris Johnson, you know, had to resign. You know, was a terrible foreign secretary. Remember, you know, we had Nazanin We, we he failed to resolve. We had him insulting people left, right, and centre. He's been, you know, he kind of his horrific kind of burqa letterbox comments. Mm-hmm. You know, pandering to kind of you know racism. So I kind of think, you know. And and where is David Cameron? Is he a niece with his trotters up? <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back in the new year uh, for what is going to be another fascinating year of politics. You can uh, go to our website, which is mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes. That's A-Y-E-S. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at at JBT Mirror. Nicola's
2: at... Nicola R Bartlett.
0: And Ben... At Benglays. Thanks so much. Have a good Christmas and New Year. The eyes to the left.